0: Welcome to the worship service at the Seventh day Adventist Church in Hayward, California, a multicultural church in the San Francisco East Bay that worships on the seventh day Sabbath, Saturday. The ministry of the Word by Pastor Paul Penno is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to forgive sin and save from sin by his cross and ministry as priest in the heavenly sanctuary. The third angel's message in verity. Join us now as the service is in progress. The Lord has a special message for you this morning, if you will give Him an ear for the next 30 minutes. There have always been wonderful converted Christian people who have gone to their graves, not having all of the hidden recesses of their hearts opened up to their understanding. An illustration would be John Wesley. I think that John Wesley in the 18th century was certainly used in a powerful way by God in reforming English Protestantism. Uh, He taught Christian perfection. He didn't rightly understand the truth of Jesus' cleansing ministry in the heavenly sanctuary, however, which is the way to Christian perfection. He, John Wesley, founded a church, a Sunday-keeping church, which to this day, the Methodists do not recognize the fourth commandment as the seventh-day Sabbath. Certainly, this is an unknown sin to John Wesley. He went to his grave with that unknown sin. I think of Martin Luther, great reformer of the 16th century. He was used by God, wasn't he, to proclaim, to articulate, to write the wonderful truth uh, and restoration of God's love in justification by faith, the forgiveness of sins. He understood God's forgiveness in a legal sense uh, for the sinner, but he separated it, what should follow in terms of sanctification, because he felt that that could never be up to standard. Luther never connected healthful living uh, with the body as the temple of the living God. Never connected that with justification by faith. And so Martin Luther worked on his beer belly. He drank a lot of beer and he also opposed the Sabbatarians and he called them a bunch of fanatics, those who worshipped on the seventh day. So here you have a converted man with a hidden sin gone unrecognized to his grave. The point is that there are many such Christians who, in the times of their ignorance, God has winked at. He's laid to rest. They sleep until the resurrection. They were never a final demonstration of the gospel of Christ, which reconciles completely the alienated heart to himself. However, they lived up to all of the light to which they understood, and God mercifully revealed to them, and he will be merciful to them. There are many such individuals who have had to endure persecution for righteousness' sake down through the centuries, and God has sustained them in that persecution. However, God knows that in the great controversy between Christ and Satan, the cross of Christ in the final times is going to be replayed a thousand times over again worldwide throughout this globe because Satan is going to seek to win a war by unleashing his terrorism upon the saints. And so Jesus is going to produce a people who will, be, who will stand and they will be unmoved by his grace in the face of Satan's terrorism. Amen? And the mark of the beast is just that issue, which lies on our near horizon. I know that we are very lulled to sleep in our security by the thought that such a persecution could never take place in what we consider to be, quote, Christian America, much less could this ever happen on a worldwide scale. That Christians could be persecuted for Sabbath-keeping and not worshiping on Sunday, that seems inconceivable, doesn't it? However, The civil civil liberties and the religious freedoms that we now take for granted, dear friends, could suddenly all disappear. You know what the two great principles are which our country is founded upon? Ellen White had the spirit of prophecy. She told us what the two great principles were of our country. And you know that our country, the United States of America, is the leading country of freedom in the world And this leading country of freedom in the world is found, the reason it is great is because of these two principles upon which it is founded. And that is, according to Ellen White, Protestantism and a representative republic. Protestantism means the protesting nature of the churches against the paganizing of Christianity which Romanism has done. And that protesting nature of the Protestant church is well nigh today non-existent within the United States of America. It has almost capitulated completely to Romanism. Protestantism has joined hands with Rome in all of its teachings. And our representative republic, Which is a government of the people and by the people and for the people is fast becoming a monopolized grab for power by a wealthy ruling oligarchy who do not listen to the people who are to be self governing according to our Constitution. So, the two great principles which make this country great are about to collapse. And liberty-loving people today will oppress the consciences of their fellow men as a consequence of the collapse of these principles and revive the religious persecutions of the Dark Ages. Ellen White says this in the Review and Herald, page December 18, 1888, National apostasy, and that means the collapse of Protestantism and the representative form of government national apostasy will be followed by national ruin. She says that. Now, it's only only the gospel of Jesus Christ and the cross of Christ can truly produce a converted people who will be able to pass the test of the mark of the beast issue. I firmly believe that Jesus' as the only solution for us to face the crisis that lies on our horizon. God is going to produce through the gospel of Jesus Christ a people who will be genuine gold through and through with no known as well as unknown sin. And if there should be any ounce of sin, it would be revealed in the day of trial. For example, was Peter a converted man going into the crucifixion? Was Peter a converted man going into the crucifixion? Well, we have the Bible answer to that. And we should listen to the Bible and to Jesus' words. Look at Luke chapter 22, verses 31 through 34. The Lord previously had told Peter going into the crucifixion, that he was an unconverted man. Here it is. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for thee, that thy faith fail not. And then he says, and when thou art, what? Converted. Converted. Strengthen thy brethren. He said unto him, Lord, I'm ready to go with thee, I'm ready for the crisis, I'm ready to go both into the prison and to die for you. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, that the cock shall not crow this day before that thou shalt thrice deny that thou knowest me. Now listen carefully, there was something that was unknown to Peter which caused his collapse in the hour of crisis, obviously, correct? Something he didn't know about himself. What was it? Surely we cannot come up to the mark of the beast issue and give up to our shame and to the dishonor of our Lord. Surely that cannot happen like Peter did in the hour of the crisis. Can that happen? You know, the heart of the issue was to later come more sharply into focus for Peter when following Jesus' resurrection, Christ asked him three times, Peter, lovest thou me? Lovest thou me? Lovest thou me? You see, before the cross, agape had not been perfected in Peter. Therefore, what was in Peter was self-preservation and self-centeredness that was the ruling principle of his heart, and that is why he was an unconverted man going into the crisis He had not let your, that he had not yet learned the principle, the core principle of the cross, which is self crucified with Christ and there are uncounted Numbers of Christians who are attracted to Jesus for selfish reasons. Yes, I've said it. There are uncounted numbers of people who are attracted to Jesus for self centered reasons. They don't want to die, they don't want to burn in hell forever, they prefer going to heaven and living in condominiums with an address on a golden street. It's all self-centered reasons. But the one constant before they met Christ, as well as after meeting Christ, is that self for them is firmly in place. The worship of self is disguised as the worship of Christ. This is an unconscious sin. Are you seeing this? Now go to, to Matthew chapter seven and verse 21. Matthew chapter seven and verse 21. And I guess I'll, for brevity, I'll go to verse 22. This is something I've not comprehended before. Many, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, says Jesus, I never knew you. I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. What is the problem here? Is Jesus just some kind of a callous judge here? I don't think so. I think he says these words with with tears in his eyes, don't you? What's the problem here? Have we not prophesied in your name? Look what we have done in your name. Say that again, my brother. Who was that? Self-glorification disguised as the worship of Christ. There's no agape. It's all self. This is why it's works of lawlessness, says Jesus. There are many people who are attracted to Christ for selfish reasons. Do you get it? There's abundant testimony in the Bible. This would be an unknown sin, see? There's abundant testimony in the Bible regarding unknown sin in the hearts of converted people. If you want some more examples, go to Jeremiah chapter 2 and verse 23. The priests, the leaders, and the people, they were not aware of their apostasy from God, and they were arguing with God thus In Jeremiah 2, verse 23, they said, How, God, can you say, or how can you say, pardon me, this is God asking the question, How can you say, I am not defiled? I have not followed the Balaam. And God's response was, verse 35, You say, I'm innocent, but I shall challenge your claim to have done no sin. See the claim here? I'm innocent. I'm not worshiping Baal. God says, I'd like to challenge that. Their supposed self-declaration of loyalty and worship toward God was in reality self-worship in following after Baal. The final sin of sins that filled up the descendants of ancient Israel's uh, cup of iniquity was also an unknown sin. For Jesus prayed for his murderers in Luke chapter 23, verse 34. As he hung upon the cross, Jesus prayed this, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Would you say that's an unknown sin? The greatest sin of all history was an unknown sin. Well, we say we would never be guilty of that. The greatest sin ever committed was one they do not know, an unconscious one done by the religious people of God's chosen nation on earth. Dear friends, that sin remains the fundamental sin of the whole world even today. The Spirit of Prophecy, Desire of Ages. How many of you have the book Desire of Ages? On page 745 says this, that that prayer, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That prayer of Christ for his enemies embraced the world. It took in every sinner that had lived or should live from the beginning of the world to the end of time. Upon all rests the guilt of crucifying the Son of God. Why is this so? Because every sinner by nature would do that awful deed if he or she had not repented and thus been redeemed of it. If we had been there at the foot of the cross and not repented of our self-centeredness, we would have been there cheering them on in the crucifixion of Christ, the unknown sin. And given the right circumstances and the right pressures, every sinner would do no better than those people did 2,000 years ago. We actually crucify Christ afresh in all of our uh, lovelessness, of our treatment of our brethren or our fellow men in our neighborhoods, in our community because Christ says the way we treat our fellow men and our neighbors is the way we treat Him. The inhumanity of man toward man is in reality and inhumanity toward Christ. And in five volume of Bible commentary, page 1085, the prophet says, The books of heaven record the sins that would have been committed had there been opportunity. So if they record such sins, it's obvious that such sins, before the Mark of the Beast issue, need to be blotted out, wouldn't you say? From my heart and from yours as well as from the record books of heaven. They can't be blotted out from the records of heaven unless they're blotted out from the record of my life. There is something unknown that I don't know about and I consider myself a converted man. Those record books in heaven are not just simply erased automatically. They're only erased when it's revealed to us what lies within. And there's an important truth that is implicit here in the message of Christ's righteousness. No one of us is any better than any other. Inside of us, there's nothing that makes us any one whit taller than another. Because all genuine love, all genuine righteousness never comes from within, it has to be imported from without and imputed by Christ himself. Luther, I think, wisely said it. He said, one should exercise mercy, for we are all made of the dough of which prostitutes and fornicators are made. If we stand, we stand by grace alone. Otherwise, our piety stands on a wisp of straw and soon collapses. The principle is expressed elsewhere as follows. By Sister White, in Testimonies to Ministers, page 38, she says, We're still in a world where Jesus, the Son of God, was rejected and crucified, where the guilt of despising Christ and preferring a robber still rests, and unless we individually repent, we shall lie under the full condemnation that the action of choosing Barabbas instead of Christ merited. The whole world stands charged today with the deliberate rejection and murder of the Son of God. All would act the same part were the same opportunity granted as did the Jews and the people of the time of Christ. They would be partakers of the same spirit that demanded the death of the Son of God. The ancient Jews were so fixated, so fixated on self-preservation as a nation from the threat of Rome, that they did not discern by faith their true Messiah, correct? And therefore, their representative, their high priest, their retired priest by the name of Caiaphas, he offered a sociological reason why Jesus should be crucified. Caiaphas argued that it was expedient that one die for the nation rather than all to die at the hands of the Romans. A good sociological reason, wouldn't you say? One for the nation? To Caiaphas, the crucifying of the Son of God was not a sin. It was an administrative necessity. So unbelief is the root cause of the crucifixion of Jesus. And this was the belief in the law of self-preservation. And Paul says, for whatsoever is not of faith is sin. Whatsoever is not of faith is sin. They did not, by faith, recognize their true Messiah. We do not recognize him today. Another example of obvious unconscious sin is Hazael in 2 Kings chapter 8 and verse 12 and 13 in the Old Testament. Hazael, we're told that he was astonished when the prophet told him of his future course. I know the evil that you will do to the children of Israel, their strongholds you will set on fire, and their young men you will kill with the sword, and you will dash their children and rip open their women with child. And so Hazael said, But what is your servant, a dog, that he should do this gross thing? You know, probably Hitler in his youth also never dreamed of the evil that he was capable of doing. There are many converted people who have died while in a state of ignorantly committing unknown sin. Praise God. He imputes His righteousness to them. He substitutes for them. But the point, dear friends, of the Seventh-day Adventist sanctuary doctrine is that Jesus cannot continue forever forever being our intercessor and our substitute. And those issues is what we are concerned with right now, and that is about getting ready not for death, but for translation. Otherwise, Seventh-day Adventism has no reason for its existence. You know, the books of heaven are very accurate photographs, very accurate computer of the characters of God's people. Very accurate. Sins cannot be blotted out from the books of heaven until, first of all, they are cleansed from the hearts of God's people that are on the earth, not merely excused, pardoned, or forgiven. And the very last, the very root, the very taproot of sin itself must be eliminated. And the real reason is whether there is a practical change of of, uh, our behavior significance to the cleansing of the heavenly sanctuary or whether that high priestly ministry is merely some kind of a ritual that he performs millions of light years away from us without any practical relevance at all to our personal lives. As we see it, the taproot of sin is unbelief. It's alienation from God. It's enmity against Him. It participates in the murder of the Son of God. It's the very sin of which the whole world stands charged today, apart from specific repentance. All other sins are mere fruit that are growing out from that taproot of unbelief. And the Lord's servant took pains to tell us of Peter's very shameful Failure after he was so sure that he could never deny his Lord. The fact of the matter was, he did not know his true heart. Ellen White tells us in Christ's Object Lessons, page 155, regarding Peter, that self-confidence led him to the belief that he was saved. Did you get it? Self-confidence led him to believe that he was saved. Never can we safely put confidence in self or feel this side of heaven that we are secure against temptation. Those who accept the Savior, however sincere their conversions, should never be taught to say or to feel that they are saved. This is misleading. It was necessary for Peter to learn his own defects of character. Now note the counsel that we have. However sincere their conversion, those who follow Christ should never claim or feel that I'm saved. Is not such a claim virtually the same as to feel that one is fully and finally converted? Think about it it's much wiser for us to say, I am being saved. I am in the process of being saved. I have given my heart to the Lord and I am following Him on to know Him and I have chosen to serve Him and I seek to be newly converted every day because I do not know what is in my heart. Conversion is an ongoing lifelong process and it is not a period. Assurance of salvation is a glorious prospect. The closer one comes to Christ, however, the less concerned he is about assurance of salvation. I'll tell you this, the closer that you come to someone that you love and have confidence in and that you know will never turn on you, the less you need assurance. You are secure in the love. It's only the insecure, self-centered heart that needs assurance of salvation and have to feel like they are saved. Do you see the difference? Genuine assurance comes from agape a settling into the truth that God loves you and He went to hell for you and there is nothing that will revoke that love from you. That's assurance. Amen? Amen. If the yearning for assurance is rooted in our self-centered fears, immediately we are rebuked. For there is no fear in agape, but perfect agape casts out fear. He who fears has not been made perfect in agape. And agape is not an advanced course that is irrelevant to ordinary followers of the Lord. Agape is not something that you have to go to higher education to get. I'll tell you, simple folks like us can enlist in its in its educational course, right now. He who does not love," John says, with agape does not know God, for God is agape. And genuine New Testament faith is always a heart appreciation of that agape and not fear-motivated fire escape from hell. Fear was the motivate, was not the motivation to which the apostles appealed when they proclaimed the cross they presented even to the beginners the motivation that it was inspired by the cross. And true righteousness by faith applies itself to those roots of motivation. I think people need to know that from the start of their education regarding Christianity and the true Christ and not as some kind of advanced course later on. And thus a yearning for assurance that is based on fear may be rooted In this unconsciousness of unbelief, it can be superficially satisfied, but it is a crossless assurance that stifles the conscience. It hardens the heart against the Holy Spirit's continued conviction of sin. Do you see what we're saying here? That is, if you think you were saved in 1969, when you got baptized and you gave your heart to the Lord, then there's no necessity for you to continue to repent it's much better to say, I am being saved and I follow on to know Christ day by day. It's much better to understand that the more that you fall in love with Jesus, the more fear is cast out of your heart and you are secure in that love of Jesus. Much better. So this yearning for assurance goes along with the false gospel stifling of the holy spirit stifling of the conscience to be convicted by the holy spirit of things that we don't know that lie within i'm rich and i'm increased with goods and i have need of nothing i don't need to know any more don't need to know any more truth much less anything that else that kind of beast that lies within me because I'm rich and I'm increased with goods and I have need of nothing. And then we have the terrible self-deception and spiritual pride of Laodicea, don't we? The cleansing of the sanctuary cannot be complete until the last ounce of that egocentric sinful fear is cleansed away. And this is because fear will automatically program the soul to succumb to the test of the mark of the beast and spiritual pride will effectively mask the need so a clearer understanding and heart appreciation of what happened on the cross alone can cleanse away this deeply rooted fear it is possible that a truly converted person may have sins to be overcome that he or she has not yet realized the fact has nothing to do with his or her assurance of salvation or even his standing with the lord if he should die living up to all of the light that he has, like a Luther or a Wesley, his eternal security is certain because of the continued imputation of Christ's righteousness. But he that is dead is freed from sin. If you're in the grave, you're free from it. And you have the hope of the resurrection. But there will come a time when our high priest will cease his ministry Can it go on forever? And the saints must be done with funerals. Correct? Meanwhile, the continued ministry of the Holy Spirit is true to Christ's word, and that is His work to convict of sin. And that's the work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus declares that the first work of the Holy Spirit is is to discover or to expose to one's conscience an awareness of sin which he has previously not been aware of. Does this work of the Holy Spirit come to an end when one is first converted? Without this convicting ministry of the Holy Spirit, no one can possibly know what lies deep within his heart. And so the Holy Spirit has the ability to make unknown sin known to us. But at any moment that the converted person Refuses this continued ministry, his conversion suddenly ends and he becomes a self centered Christian. Is that a discouraging doctrine? Not if we welcome the continued and the blessed ministry of the Holy Spirit, whose work is to convict of sin. Not if we are concerned about preparing for the Lord's return rather than merely preparing for a funeral. Some of Ellen White's frequent references to unknown sin in the hearts of converted people are as follows. She says, We know that there is no one, however earnest he may be, striving to do his best who can say, I have no sin. He who would say this would be under a very dangerous deception as the Scripture says, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Through affliction, God reveals to us the plague spots in our characters that by his grace we may overcome our faults. Unknown chapters in regard to ourselves are open to us and the test comes whether we will accept the reproof and the counsel of God. If we have defects of character of which we are not aware, the Lord gives us discipline that will bring those defects to our knowledge that we may overcome them. In each new position, we meet a different class of temptations. Your circumstances have served to bring new defects in your character to your notice, but nothing is revealed but that which was in you. We begin to realize that we are sinners and we need to fall on the rock to be broken and we are brought close to the heart of Jesus. Folks, Here's an illustration. Give it to you from my own personal life. Last week I got a phone call, not from around here, from a smooth talker. And the smooth talker says, I don't know you. I don't know your ministry. I'm a man of peace but here's what's wrong with your ministry. And for the first 15 minutes, I listened. And by the end of the 15 minutes, my heart was in palpitation. I thought I was going to have an attack. And my mind was going through the whole list. I'm going to blast this guy, bing, 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 bada bong. And then these words came to my mind. There's nothing within you that wasn't already there. I'm just revealing it to you. And I said, Lord, may self be crucified with Christ. And so I listened for another 15 minutes. Same kind of harangue. And at the close, I said, are you finished? because there had been a pause, I said, do you feel better now? And then I had a prayer, a prayer about the cross of Christ and being crucified with him. And I hung up. Friends, you'll never win an argument with the devil. You'll never win an argument with the accuser. Not even Jesus did that argued with the accuser. I'm not holding this up to say what a nice guy I was and how I reacted to that. Not at all, because I'm telling you that my ego, my ego was really pricked. But you know what I'm talking about, don't you? You know what I'm talking about. The Lord revealed to me something I didn't know about myself. It was already there. I'm thankful he did that. That's not a discouraging ministry of the Holy Spirit, is it? I welcome that. The difference between the forgiveness of sins, and the blotting out of sins. It's an essential truth of righteousness by faith. A genuinely converted person knows the joy of his sins being forgiven, but. However, sincere his conversion, it is still possible that he can fall and he can reactivate his sins. Yes, he can become as hazel and do evil that he may not know at present and even imagine possible. And not until his sins are blotted out is he eternally secure so that the seal of God can be placed upon him. The books of heaven will continue to record the sins that would have been committed had there been opportunity until such time as they are blotted out. And that involves the final atonement, which in turn involves a final repentance. And this in turn involves repenting of those sins that we would have committed if sufficiently pressured, but which we may not now realize we could commit. And to make the progression complete, this repentance alone can make possible the love for souls that will characterize the 144,000. The final test of the mark of the beast will be the ultimate in pressure, or it will be the ultimate in opportunity that Satan will stir up in order that the final taproot of sin And the participation in the crucifixion of Christ can take place. And this sin can be ultimately repented of and blotted out when self in the believer is truly crucified with Christ. In other words, the world is eventually going to be catalyzed into two camps. Those who crucify Christ afresh in the person of his saints by persecuting them with the mark of the beast issue or those in whom self is crucified with him. Perhaps Luther and Wesley will be students when they get to heaven in a special education class along with others. We read from Ellen White, in heaven instruction will be given to those who when they died did not understand perfectly the plan of salvation. However, those whose faith will endure through the time of trouble without an intercessor will have to become more mature in their knowledge of truth and in their victory over self. And in a practical sense, they must understand perfectly the plan of salvation or they will not be able to stand. This is another way of saying that for them, all unknown sin must come to consciousness and be repented of. And this blessing can be realized only through a true understanding of righteousness by faith. In taking upon himself our fallen sinful nature, Christ assumed all of the temptability that possession of a nature of that nat- natural but fallen self centeredness entails, but never once did Jesus yield to temptation. He tells us that he constantly had to deny his own will in order to follow in steps of his Father's will. And for a people to become truly like him, yes, to stand at, at his side as a bride must require the work of the final atonement, a blotting out of sins. Jesus is the firstborn among many brethren. The good news is that we can overcome even as he overcame and be fruits of that firstborn. And he will not be ashamed to call us brethren week after week and we don't apologize we bring serious subjects to your attention we believe that this is the message of the Lord for his people right now it's no time for entertainment this is no time for trivial pursuits This is a time for the people of God to know where they're living right now. Will the Lord have to continue to place His restraining hand upon political as well as religious trends in order that another generation of the remnant, who is the real stopper here, gets His message of love? Or will it be our generation? I'm serious. For the honor of Christ who went to hell for us, he needs our vote. He needs a people who will stand with him and not disgrace him, but honor him. He knows he doesn't have a people yet, 144,000, upon which he can remove his protecting hand from this world and let Satan have his way at them. Because that's the rules of the great controversy in order to demonstrate the power of the gospel, whether it works or not. I'm just being up front with you. How long are we going to dilly-dally around and say, oh, he just preaches like that every Sabbath, you know, and walk out of here without even thinking any more about it? Oh, that's just Pastor Pino. I preach to you from deep, abiding convictions in my heart, what I believe the Lord has given us as a people to help vindicate the character of God in the great controversy. And we are living in very, very serious times. And if you can't see it, pray for the Lord to give you discernment. These are extreme times. But the Lord might just have to put his hand on those extreme external situations in order to prolong this another century, unless his people awaken. Because we're the stopper. It is the wicked servant who says in his heart, my Lord delayeth his coming. Now you think about that. If you say that the Lord is delaying His coming because He'll come when He wants to come, that's what the wicked servant says. It attributes the delay to the Lord when the delay is really their issue. They're the ones delaying His coming. Think about it. We're living in serious times. Does the sanctuary truth have a very practical application in terms of our day-to-day living and a relentless pursuit for knowing all of the truth that he has to reveal to us. Because if, if there is any kind of hesitation or hindrance of the small truth, there will not be any opportunity for future truth, simply because the heart says, I don't want any more Holy Spirit here. You're not welcome. May the doors of God's people's hearts be open to his testimony. Is my prayer Amen. Join us again next time for the word of God, which will feed the soul. I am committed to bring you the fullness of the gospel as Jesus has revealed it to us in order to prepare a people for his soon coming.